Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. And let me again thank you so much for coming. It's great to see some returning students. In days ahead, Lord willing, we'll see some new visiting students when orientation is over. Uh, We want you to be here in this portion of God's family. Here at Redeemer, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. So each week we read it, we hear it, we proclaim it and study it, because through it, God speaks to us. Now, since April, we've been studying the life of Abraham and Abraham's God. And next week, we'll begin a new series, Lord willing, in the New Testament, Epistle to the Hebrews. But tonight, we complete our study of Abraham with the record of his death in the form of an obituary, including information about his next of kin, his heirs, years of life, and place of burial. Unless Jesus returns soon, none of us will escape death. Uh, Naked you came from your mother's womb. Naked you will return to the earth. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. What will you be remembered for? How will you have lived? To whom will you pass on your possessions and why? And what might be said of you by others? Let's hear what's said of Abraham in Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 to 11. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshin, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshin fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hannah, Abadah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it in our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we pray that you bless your word to our hearts beyond our abilities to comprehend its truths and glories and be sweet to our soul, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A fellow pastor of mine, an acquaintance, a PCA minister, in fact, church planter, 
uh, wrote the obituary in a hospital with his sister for his mother as she lay dying. It was for the local paper, you understand, but picked up by the National News and the New York Times. Published it. It was so interesting, shall we say. He and his sister had started out to write a typical obituary and then decided, well, that his mother wouldn't like the dreary facts. And so they wrote the following, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and I'm just reading a portion. Waffle House lost a loyal customer on April 30. Tony LaRue died after a battle with multiple illnesses, lupus, rickets, scurvy, kidney disease, and feline leukemia. Only cats get that. The nickname Polio Legs was given to her by her ex-husband, Jean LaRue Jr. It should not be difficult to imagine the multiple reasons for their divorce. (laughs) Two children resulted from that marriage due to multiple anonymous Mother's Day cards which arrive each May. The children suspect there were other siblings, though that's not been verified. Her favorite child, Jean III, that was written by his sister, eloped in college, married Kim. Together they had three children. And Tony often remarked that her son, Jean III, was just like his father. A statement that haunts her son to this day. Tony had four sisters. And as one family photo proved, all preferred Clairol Blonde in a Box number 47. Tony previously served on the board of her local library foundation. Ironically, uh, the only correspondence she received from them since her resignation has been overdue notices. And her last words were, tell them the check is in the mail. Her memorial service will be by the Reverend Kurt Moore. A questionable choice for any spiritual event, but one the family felt would be appropriate because every time Tony heard Kurt preach, she prayed Jesus would return that very moment. And on a last but serious note, the woman who loved life and taught her children to laugh at the days to come is now safely in the arms of Jesus, and she will be missed. Anyone wearing black will not be admitted to the memorial service. She is not dead. She is alive. Well, you can learn a lot about a person by what's written about them after their death and You can learn a lot about their children that way too. The people who write the obituary. Here we have Abrahams. Perhaps you were surprised if you've been tracking with us. Now I realize tonight some of you are catching the very end of the story. And I apologize for that. But if you've been tracking the story of Abraham from the beginning, you may be surprised to find that he had another wife and many more children and grandchildren maybe you were intrigued by the distribution what seemed to be the very inequitable distribution of his possessions certainly the writer wants you to know at the very end at the very least that his death was not the end of God's blessing on his family
So what can we learn from an obituary? Let me highlight three things with you this evening. One, the messiness of God's believing people. Two, the faithfulness of God that encourages our commitment to the cause of God. And thirdly, the work of God which continues when our work is done. Three things tonight. In the first place, the messiness of God's believing people. Verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, when did that happen? Some say after Sarah died. The text is given after those events. Others say, now wait, perhaps during the life of Sarah. I actually take that view. But if you take the first view, and I'll explain myself, if you take the first view, that all this is after she died, well, then there's a sermon there about unanticipated blessings, about who knows what the future might hold, uh, or late-in-life fruitfulness, its causes and cure. And if that's the sermon, there's a wonderful illustration from a particular kind of Chinese bamboo I was just reading about this week. It's, it's planted, but nothing seems to happen for a long time. It doesn't come up for five years, but it's alive and it's gearing itself up for what will happen in the next decade. So, next decade, so year, half decade. So year one, nothing. Year two, nothing. Year three, Nothing. Year four, nothing. Year five, it grows over 90 feet tall in six weeks. The question is, did it grow 90 feet in six weeks or in five years? Obviously, it took five years. Though for most of that time, it seemed as if nothing was happening. Well, listen, if Abraham married Keturah after Sarah died, then his family tree sure grew fast. All of a sudden, after he was already 140 years old and 40 years after his own body had been considered by himself, as we've learned, to be dried up and as good as dead in terms of reproduction, look at Romans 4.19. But if you take the other view, then Abraham took Keturah as another wife or concubine during, at some point, the lifetime of Sarah, to whom he was married for, uh, was it 60 years or more? The 1560s Geneva Bible actually takes that view, as did John Calvin and at least half the commentators I read. That would explain the reference to multiple concubines at verse 6. Only Sarah was the legitimate and full-fledged wife with all the benefits, but it mentions his concubines, and we know he had Hagar, the handmaiden, but who are the other that make that plural, if not Keturah? But that wouldn't explain why we hadn't heard of her or these children until now at the very end. Though there are many surprising things sometimes people find out a person after they're gone. The answer to that, though, is that they were not a part of the main story until now. After all, it wasn't out of character for Abraham to take a concubine, see Hagar. 
And it wasn't unusual for him to have other children see Ishmael. But Hagar and Ishmael were important to the story, central to the soap opera, you remember. Whereas these didn't become important to the story until now as the inheritance is passed to Isaac and not to them. And as the blessing of God passes on through Isaac and particularly to him. In that case, if that's the view, our sermon isn't about how fruitful we could be late in life but how messy our lives can be during life, and yet how faithful our God is to his messy people in their mess. And, and I will say happily, if you disagree with me about when he took her as his bride, thankfully, we might say, the point is already well established over the course of his life. Abraham, as we have seen time and again, was a mess, and yet a believing mess in so many ways. He was fearful. He was self-protective. He was deceitful about Sarah, his wife. You remember that he basically prostituted, prostituted her to Pharaoh and later to Abimelech for his own protection. And he was self-reliant even when he was trying to fulfill what he knew God's will was for him. That was the episode with Hagar. It was according to the flesh. It was by man's design and efforts in an effort to get a child God promised, but not the way that God himself promised. So he was not God-dependent, not looking to God to fulfill God's plan, God's way, and through Sarah. That's just some of his mess. Now here we find he not only married Sarah, but he's had Hagar and perhaps Keturah on the side. Abraham strikes me then as the Old Testament equivalent of the church in the New Testament at Corinth. One problem after another. Problems with believing and obeying. Problems with marriage and sex, problems with doubt and assurance of salvation and many other things. Yet Corinth, you remember, was a real church with genuine Christians. And that's just the beginning of their problems, as I described. To whom it was said at the beginning of the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, before Paul gets to all the problems they have and his correctives, chapter 1, Verse 7, he says, You wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that's true of our father in the faith, Abraham. He's an example of God's gracious call, called into fellowship with God, declared by God, chapter 15, to be guiltless, even to be righteous, and not based on his works or obedience, but he believed the promises of God. Through faith, he was righteous. And he waited on the revealing of the Messiah. He waited for God, through him as promised, to bring blessing to all the nations of the, of the world 
through his descendant. And we see that God picked him up when he fell. God reassured him when he doubted. God stayed with him when he wandered and set his feet in the right direction. And God preserved him in faith to the finish line. Now, is anybody trying to excuse Abraham for his polygamy? No. No more than we excuse David or Solomon. The Bible doesn't commend it. It doesn't condone it. Yet Abraham is one whom the scripture says three times he was the friend of God. God said, Abraham is my friend. That's 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7. That's Isaiah 41 verse 8. That's James chapter 2 verse 23. This man who was called out of idolatry into faith to believe the one true God and all the promises of his blessing, including the coming of the Messiah, he lived a messed up life time and again and God was a faithful friend who did not turn his back upon him. Your messiness doesn't destroy God's friendship when once he has called you his friend. There's a fellow church planter in the PCA again named Tim planting in Los Angeles who tells the story of his own church he says quote we were living in mid-city LA we met our neighbors next door one late evening having barbecue and scotch me hey Jason what do you do to keep the lights on answer I produce films I said cool you got to give me some of your stuff. My wife and I will watch them and we'll talk about it. Jason hems and haws. He avoids and deflects. And finally he says, Tim, dude, it's porn. You wouldn't like it. Me, is there any scotch left? Fast forward a few months. His living girlfriend has a stroke. That's not the church planter. That's Jason. <laughs> months of rehab. We bring meals, we watch her during the day. He says it sounds romantic, but it was a lot of trouble. She has open heart surgery. She has brain surgery. Part of her scalp has to be attached to her leg to keep it alive. She has another stroke. Predictably, he says, all their hot-looking friends disappeared. Fast forward a few months. Jason calls me on a Sunday morning. Could you come visit us in the hospital? None of our friends will come see us. Sure, sure, I say. And after church, my wife says, are you going to go visit them? It's like 10 minutes away. Me, says Jason. Kids are tired, hungry. I'll do it later. My wife says to me, Tim, we've been praying all year for opportunities. You're going. So he says, I go to UCLA Medical Center. I go up, I put on my hazmat suit. She's got shingles, staff, open lesions all over her body. And he says, let me pray for you guys. And Jason says, sure. And so he says, I prayed a whopping prayer with zero thought of the contextualization of who's listening. And, and I start weeping in the middle of it. And then Jason and his girlfriend start weeping too. And afterwards, Jason says... If I knew Jesus was like this, I would have considered Christianity 
much earlier. Fast forward a few months. I met with them and the girlfriend says, I want to go to your church, but I won't do it unless Jason goes. Jason says, bleep, 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 yeah, we're going. I said, you know that my friendship with you guys isn't contingent on you coming to my church. Jason says, we, we bleeping know that. Uh, sorry, I had to edit this. You are the only people we've met in L.A. who give a bleep for someone besides themselves. And so they come to church. He says, this was the front row. A musician off tour, an actress from Mad Men, Jason, his girlfriend, a heroin addict, and the sweetest Christ-following family. Man, I thought, these are your people. Jason's girlfriend stayed for an hour. All kinds of people prayed for them. Fast forward note. He says, I realize this story might make me sound like a hero, but I'm not. I was and am so like Jonah in that situation I kind of even dread them coming over. But they want to pray all the time. And I weep because I still don't get how beautiful grace is. End quote. Grace grabs hold of messy idolaters like Abraham. Grace holds on to them through failure time and again because God in his grace makes friends with his people that's the first point second and third are shorter the second one is the faithfulness of God that encourages our commitment to the cause of God Abraham was messy but he was believing so what did he do verses 5 and 6 it says he passed his inheritance on to Isaac now why did he do that Well, because God's faithfulness to his promises encouraged him to commit everything to the heir of God's promises. And Isaac was the promised one. Through him, through his descendant, Jesus would come. All the promises would be fulfilled. Now, Abraham, how had God been faithful to him? The passage itself points us to at least three ways. We could talk about many more. First, God was faithful to his promise. That Abraham would be the father of many nations. And all these kids and all these grandkids from Sheba, which is the area of spice trade from which likely the queen of Sheba came later to meet Solomon, to Midian and the Midianites, one of whom married Moses and a Midianite father-in-law was a help to him, though the Midianites themselves were a trouble to the people of God. Ishmaelites, as you know, all kinds have come from Abraham. And that is a direct fulfillment of Genesis 17, verse 4, when God had said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God answered that. Even his messes serve the purposes of God in that. Secondly, God was faithful to him to give him a long life. Abraham, it says, got 175 years. 100 of those were in the promised land. And that fulfilled God's prior word to him in Genesis 15, verse 15, when God, in reassuring him, said, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And he was. 
And thirdly, God was faithful to give him Isaac. When he and Sarah were old, God said to him in Genesis 18.10, I will surely return to you this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. God even told him his name's going to be Isaac. And in Genesis 20, about a year later, she bore Isaac, this child to whom he gives the inheritance. In all these ways, he saw God was faithful to what God promised him. And so what did he do? He clung to God. And he committed himself to the cause of God. And at the end, you get the sense that Abraham is doing all he can to ensure Isaac's provision and Isaac's protection because Isaac is the promised seed. So in verse 5, he gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of the concubines, he gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now, those who study these things say that by the custom of the day, you could even look at the code of Hammurabi in neighboring nations, the legitimate son inherits everything. The children of the concubine inherit nothing if they're given gifts and while uh, the father is alive, sends them away and doesn't own them as part of the inheritance. And that's precisely what Abraham did here. He gave them gifts, but he sent them away. And obviously here, uh, there's a kind of inequality in the way these children were treated. And Calvin, in his commentary, remarks on this passage, you know, this would be a terrible way to treat children today. He says, if you do this in your own family, you would be assuring that your children would hate one another for the rest of their lives. You would probably build deep resentments in your children if you did this. Why would Abraham do this? He did it precisely because God told him to. And for no other reason. This was not Abraham's idea. This is God's idea because it is Isaac and only Isaac who is the promised one and the heir of the promises of the land in Canaan. And so for Isaac's preservation, the other boys are moved off just as we saw Ishmael was a threat to Isaac and needed to be pushed off. So Abraham's action here is not the actions of a father who's being unwise, spoiling one and neglecting the others. His actions are based on the revelation of God that Isaac is the one through whom the line of promise would come and continue. The one in whom the promises would be fulfilled and passed on. And Abraham, knowing what God had promised, says... I am all in in following you. I am committed to your cause and your purpose and your plan. And I simply ask us, what about us? Do you see how God has been faithful? Do you look back on literally now thousands of years of history and see more than and with greater clarity than what Abraham ever saw. That one of those descendants did come through Isaac, the Messiah, 
Jesus. God did exactly what He said He would do. And that Messiah did exactly the will of the Father. And what was the will? And what was the plan? That that child should be crucified on a cross that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. And having seen God be faithful to that, do we say with the Apostle Paul, the love of Christ controls us? Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Are you all in? Now the third thing is this. The work of God continues when our work is done. God's people die, but God's blessings continue. Verse 8 and verse 11. Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last. and He died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. What's that about? What does it mean he was gathered to his people? It's not synonymous with death. It occurs post-death. It's not the same as burial in an ancestral grave. Abraham wasn't buried with his ancestors in a grave. And it's not synonymous with burial itself because verse 9 tells you about burial. But here he was gathered to his people. What does that imply? It implies that there were people who went before him to whom he was gathered. It implies life beyond the grave. It implies there is no annihilation. It implies that the soul does not cease to exist. But even when our bodies are buried, our soul lives on. It's a hint of it anyway. It's not 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection of the dead. It's not the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, of course. But it is a reminder that he was old and full, gathered to his father's. Who might that be? But believing Noah and the saints who've gone before. What a blessing. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. It is a blessing to be gathered to the people of God. But there's another blessing here. God's blessing continues here as the the torch is passed. And here's where we close. Verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Remember, that's the well of the living one who sees me. The blessing of Abraham did not die with him because God continued his favor to his children. And so the work of God in blessing the world through the people of God, through the line of the promise, continued. In Westminster Abbey, I'm told, haven't seen it, you can look at a photo, there's a white marble stone memorial to John and Charles Wesley. You perhaps know their names. John, the great founder of Methodism, and his younger brother Charles, better known probably for the hymns that he wrote, though he participated in the ministry. Hymns we sing like, Come thou long expected Jesus. Or Christmas Day. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. 
or songs like Jesus, lover of my soul, and Easter hymns like Christ the Lord is risen today. That's Wesley at the base of the memorial for John and Charles are words by Charles. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. And so he does by passing on blessing from Abraham to Isaac, passing blessing from Isaac to Jacob, passing blessing from Jacob to the sons of Joseph and on and on and on for generation after generation to one another until what? Until the Redeemer came through whom God blesses all the nations of the earth. You know that the church in any one place is but one generation from ceasing to exist. Faith in Christ disappears in a home or family or a city or a region or a whole nation. And the next generation doesn't embrace the faith of Abraham and Christianity is gone. One generation is all it takes. But God is never without his church on the earth. He preserves it. He protects it. He guarantees its protection. And it may not be here, but it will be somewhere thriving until the end shall come because the Spirit blows where the Spirit desires. May we be the kind of people who look to God in faith for Him to pass on the blessings of Christ to that next generation. You older folks, you pray for the younger folks among us. You parents, you pray for God's blessing on your children. You future elders of this church, what is the work of ministry if it is not to have in your heart the longing for all, even the youngest, to know the glories and the riches of Christ Jesus and so be blessed. May the Lord make us a people like that. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. You're so good. Thank you that the work is all on you to do and accomplish. We but sow seeds, we water, but you give all growth. Bless, we pray, everyone who hears. Bless all and even the youngest. And help us to know what it is to have the faith of Abraham in the Messiah you promised. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing for all the saints.